0: I've always been a little baffled by the way that Americans, with all their love for democracy, love the word empire. Welcome
1: to the Common Errors in English Usage podcast. I'm here with Paul Bryant, author of the Common Errors in English Usage website and book, I'm the editor of that book and host of this weekly podcast, Tom Sumner. Hello, Paul. Hi, Tom. Paul, we're in the middle of one of our long discussions of terms related to a topic. Uh, vocabulary worth knowing and interesting etymologies and uh, interesting social history and so on beyond all of these terms they're all related to politics and government and now we're really getting into the really steamy stuff how about a dictatorship let's start with a dictatorship uh etymology comes first i think on that one
0: yeah it comes from a root meaning to speak you know dictate is uh dictated letter (laughs) that's pretty easy
1: that's a pretty easy (laughs) one for most people to figure out
0: yeah so it has to do with the uh, dictator speaking and the people obey what Mm -hmm. he tells them or she yeah Um, so in ancient rome a chief magistrate was granted special powers during an emergency and was called a dictator and that could be compared with the greek tradition of appointing a temporary tyrant which we talked about before Today, it's generally use of any absolute ruler uh, as a huge variety of types uh, from religious uh, fanatical leaders to fascist communists, uh, just greed heads. And so on. It's one of those terms that's never used of somebody by himself uh, or herself. The dictator doesn't say, "I am the dictator." It's, so it's always a negative term.
1: Right. But I remember George Bush saying, "I'm the decider." Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. I guess he knew that you couldn't say, I'm the dictator, so he he had to make up his own term for
0: it. Yeah, well.
1: Well, what he thought he was, anyway.
0: Yeah, he he was also viewed widely as a, a puppet of Cheney and some of his cronies. Yeah. Marx and Engels used the expression, the dictatorship of the proletariat. Which was an interesting play on words. They saw capitalist society as being ultimately controlled by the uh, capitalists, by the bourgeoisie, and that they were, uh, in their view, a tiny minority and the vast majority of people were proletariat, the hardworking working people who work for wages, and that their goal was to throw out of power the bourgeoisie and put into power the vast majority of people, that is the proletariat. They would become dictators in the sense that they would have all the power, which previously had been in the hands of the bourgeoisie. A lot of problems with that theory. One was that the bourgeoisie kept growing fantastically during the very period when this was being talked about the most until it became huge. And most Americans are really reluctant to call themselves anything but middle class, which is an interesting phenomenon. And of course, they love to use this word dictatorship in an ironic sense, but for most people, that sounds horrible. And of course, the dictatorships that evolved in places like Russia and China were old-fashioned, top-down, semi-slave-like states so it lost all its irony
1: yeah a dictatorship is preceded by words like brutal it's never a, a benign dictatorship like plato would have had right his philosopher king somebody making rules who had everybody's best interest in mind
0: yeah and his idea was that it would be sort of a sneaky underground control people would think that they had more freedom than they really did
1: yeah Well, the dictatorship of the proletariat, the term itself really just undermines the word dictatorship, because you can't have a dictatorship of the whole mass of people. (laughs) There's a contradiction in there.
0: Right. They both had a a taste for sensational language and extreme ideas that... uh unfortunately encourage some even more extreme ideas and behavior on the part of people like Lenin and Stalin later and Chairman Mao.
1: Sure, and Marx is probably best read as a philosopher the same way you would read uh uh, any other group of philosophers where it's it's ideas-based, there's no sense of this could actually practically work because humans just don't operate that way.
0: Well, he had very little to say, actually, about what a communist or a socialist state should look like. His whole thing was analyzing what was wrong with capitalism. Mm-hmm. And he did some pretty good analysis there, but uh, he didn't really sketch out what would be the case uh, other socialists had done that and he was assuming that that would be worked out in the process that people would choose the kind of socialist government that they wanted once they had achieved this revolution but of course that didn't work out that way
1: sure the communist revolution ruined marx in a way because uh, uh, many people won't read marx for that reason and uh, his critique of capitalism, like you say, is sound in many ways, but um, the implementation of or that what was perceived to be the implementation of his ideas was such a huge disaster that uh, people don't, aren't going back and, and reading Marx in, in a critical way like that. It's kind of unfortunate.
0: Yeah, When I taught a uh, nineteenth century thought class, I used to teach the Communist Manifesto, and paired with Nietzsche and Dostoevsky's Notes from Underground, both of which are seen as extremely anti-socialist. And I thought that made a nice framework for getting people's brains engaged with all the ins and outs and uh, complexities of all those sort of things. You're saying that establishment of the early socialist states like the Soviet Union uh, spoiled Marxism. I, I think, myself, some of the problems are inherent in Marxism. But um, let's not get into all those.
1: No, no, right no, now. no. And I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I'm not arguing that point. I'm just saying that uh, people should go back and read Marx. Look at the ideas, like you would in your class. Boy, that's a, a rogue's gallery of thought, isn't it? Uh, Marx and Nietzsche and, and Dostoevsky's Notes from the Underground. Yeah. Well, I mean,
0: of course Nietzsche got terribly distorted by Hitler.
1: Yeah, turned
0: into something that he really wasn't either. But that reminds me of uh, Trump recently speaking to the U.N. uh, saying that uh, what's happened in Venezuela under their socialist government is not a failure of socialism, it's the implementation of socialism. And that's that's a classic anti-communist argument. That, uh, forget about the theory. What socialism actually is, is what people have done with it. And it's, it's not that we just need to try harder and, but that it needs to be avoided altogether. Now, and that was a good example of his, um, I don't think he knows much of anything about Venezuela. I, it has been a catastrophe. No question. I wouldn't be surprised if some one of his buddies in the White House wrote that for him. Doesn't sound so much like Trump.
1: Oh, no. Yeah. Well, let's talk about another term related to communist regimes, state capitalism.
0: Yeah, that's something that some liberal critics of communism had put together. It used to be fairly common in the 60s and 70s that would Russia nationalized all these industries, but then it ran them in much the same way in terms of exploiting labor, making people work very long hours, not giving safety precautions, ruining the environment generally being as bad or worse as the employers that they were replacing in in many cases, although not in all. Most infamously, Lenin deciding to just starve a lot of the peasants who were the most productive in the country, seeing them as exploiters of the true poor, really horrible. But um, we look at Russia and China and Cuba, and even now to some degree, North Korea they all managed to rescue their economies as much as they could by allowing capitalism to creep back in. There's little private businesses allowing people to buy and sell on an open market and so on. But the big state enterprises were run in usually a pretty ruthless and hugely inefficient manner. I was told when I visited Russia that one of the reasons that they uh, were so severe about the numbers of books that they could publish from abroad was not just censorship, but they had a shortage of paper, which didn't make any sense because Russia's covered with forests. They could make all the paper they wanted if they if they wanted to. But I was also told that there there was a problem when they ship logs to market. You know, we, we hear about that with the mafia somebody shipping some merchandise into the city, and a lot of it falls off the back of the truck. That is, it actually is stolen by organized crime, Uh and, and in Russia, uh, a lot of the logs that were being transported by railroad would disappear on route, row mm-hmm. and just taken by local honchos who would then sell them. There was an awful lot of that kind of stuff going on. Anyway, what the critics of capitalism, who also opposed Stalinism, Decided to use was this term state capitalism which got both arguments capitalism is bad but this isn't socialism this is just another form of capitalism if it's not controlled by the people and if the people aren't free to make their own decisions then it's not really freedom I haven't heard that expression in quite a while and The countries that had been practicing it either evolved away from that or or kind of collapsed like the Soviet Union. So maybe it's died out.
1: Right. Well, let's talk about another term of absolute power, monarchy.
0: Right. Well, the the opening syllable tells you it's about oneness, of Mm. course. Mono. And um, it means etymologically single ruler government. Although joint monarchical rule is not unknown, occasionally there have been kings and queens that rule jointly, and even a a pair of kings, uh, usually that's pretty unstable. Monarchies are usually hereditary. Now, occasionally they're appointed or elected by an elite group. There'll be somebody who gets together and says, okay, the next king should be the younger son, because the older son is no good. Monarchy was also often uh, established by conquest. Uh, You you uh, conquer a large territory and set yourself up as king or as happened during the war of the roses in england you just overthrow the current king and put yourself in the king's place so it's too much to say that monarchy's monarchy is always about an inherited throne and often that was not really legitimately inherited but it had to do with having a right to the throne that you tried to establish and in Christian Europe, it was considered to be the divine right of kings that there was actually some authority coming from God that determined who should rule. And we talked about the king's evil and when we were talking in antique medical terms. That could demonstrate the king could cure certain diseases by touching you. And that would certainly show that God was watching over the king. Now, in modern European monarchies, like England, the monarch has little or no power. They're just a ceremonial figurehead. And the queen is actually forbidden by law to enter the House of Commons. (laughs) I was watching this BBC uh, documentary the other day. and was talking about how she gives the annual address in the Houses of Parliament to the House of Lords. And she, of course, belongs to the House of Lords as the monarch. And she has a special entry to go in and she goes in and proceeds and sits in the chair from which she delivers the speech, which has been written for her by the winning leader of the party in the House of Commons. Yeah. She is strictly (laughs) forbidden to express her own ideas. Right. And beyond that, after she's gotten there, they send a deputation down to the other end of the hall at Westminster to knock on the door at the uh, House of Commons oh the door is open but yeah they reach there and the door is slammed in their face ceremoniously to show <laughs> we don't have to let you guys in <laughs> this is a democracy and they they have to do something like knock 3 times and then finally his door is opened and they having proved their point the MPs travel down the hall to listen to what the Queen has to say, and the queen tells them just exactly what their leader wanted them to hear. Well, that's a nice
1: bit of uh, theater. (laughs) I, I didn't actually know any of that. Modern European monarchies are strictly decorative, and it has a lot of interesting analogies to celebrity culture, really. Right. Especially in England, tabloid journalism, which here in the U.S. is largely focused on celebrities and celebrity activities. In England, that sort of thing is the royal family. Yeah. People get obsessed with every little thing that they're doing in their private lives. I got interested because you had these terms dictatorship and monarchy and tyrant we were talking about. And I was interested in usage trends. I went back and looked it up, and it uh, looks like the word tyrant and monarch; those two terms have been in steady decline. But dictator, that term spiked around 1940. Hmm, what was happening around 1940? (laughs) Yeah, and the rise of fascism, of course. That was the favored term was dictator rather than tyrant, or of course monarch wouldn't be used. That's got a really much more arcane connotation and usage than tyrant or dictator. But dictator is the preferred term for somebody trying to seize authority. These
0: days, the monarchs you hear about are usually butterflies. (laughs) Right.
1: Yeah. Uh, And viceroys, for that matter. (laughs) Okay, well, let's talk about some of these leaders in more democratic institutions. I won't say they're ideally democratic. These positions of power are called presidents and prime ministers. What's the difference between those?
0: Presidents are usually ceremonial heads of state, and they show up on occasions where no decisions are really being made, but where the country has to make a show. And it can be prestigious, but it isn't usually an office with a lot of power. Instead, the prime minister is the person who is the real head of state. Everybody knows that Chancellor Angela Merkel is head of the German state, but few abroad know that Frank-Walter Steinmeier is the president of Germany. You wouldn't really have much interest in him because he's not the one that makes the decisions. In the U.S., the president combines both duties, but there is a custom sometimes of the president handing off lesser ceremonial events to the vice president. Obama was unusual in giving a lot of duties to his vice president and in recent years that's become a thing that vice presidential candidates will try to negotiate is there some area they could work on particularly where they would have some say although they can never have the final say on anything
1: right And as we mentioned earlier, there are some vice presidents that seem to have more authority than others here. Here, um, that was infamous, the influence that Dick Cheney seemed to hold over President George Bush, especially during George Bush's first term. And political analysts generally thought that over his second term, Cheney's influence was diminished. But uh, certainly when George Bush first came in, a lot of what he was implementing what was thought to be coming out of Dick Cheney's mind.
0: Kind of the opposite was uh, Richard Nixon under Dwight Eisenhower. Eisenhower yeah. couldn't stand Nixon.
1: You're right. Yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't
0: tell him anything. Yeah. Recently, I was watching a documentary on the development of the atomic bomb, which is, you know, is a subject I've studied a lot about and pointed out that Although Roosevelt had initialized and approved the Manhattan Project to build the bomb, he never bothered to tell his vice president, Harry Truman, about it. So Mm -hmm. Truman was completely surprised, really had no background whatsoever on which to make his decision when he was told, we've got this bomb, do you want us to use it?
1: So a vice president could be out of the loop at everyone else's peril, I guess, you know, because if something happens to the president, um, that's the person that ascends to power. After all, and a usage note in the Common Errors podcast, I think we need to talk about the term vice president, how it is styled, because uh, here in the U.S. we don't hyphenate the term vice president. But it's interesting to note that areas outside of the U.S. tend to hyphenate that term. And if you're talking about Vice President Pence, for example, you would capitalize vice president, but otherwise keep it lowercase. So, uh, uh, vice president seems to puzzle some people the way it's styled, but president doesn't seem to do so much, or even prime minister. I don't think anybody hyphenates prime minister or thinks to do that, right? No. Yeah. Ah. We're talking about dictatorship, tyrant, monarch, and these are terms that are mainly isolated to one person, the rule of one single person. But uh, there's another very similar form of rule called an oligarchy or a plutocracy let's talk about those a little bit
0: these used to be fairly scholarly terms and now they've been adopted by journalists and you hear them more although i don't think they're used a lot in ordinary street talk by people today oligarchy is used only negatively as is plutocracy so uh these both refer to rule by a small elite group rather than a single individual so an oligarchy is a small group comes from a greek root meaning small and uh, the ruling elite is usually characterized also by its wealth which leads to the term plutocracy plutus was the greek god of wealth not to be confused with pluto by the way Mm -hmm. in this country major conservative political donors like the Koch brothers and sheldon adelson are often considered plutocrats Our current president could certainly be considered a plutocrat, although he's not so great at sharing the power. Many of the individuals making up his administration, though, could be placed in that same category as uh, very rich people who have an inordinate influence over politics.
1: Yeah, and these days the term oligarch often follows Russian Right, because uh, we think of the Russian oligarchy as being the form of government that Russia is effectively under. Because since the fall of the Soviet Union, Russia continues to be ruled by a small group of extremely well-off people. And I say continues because I think it's widely considered that certainly as time rolled on through the Soviet Union and the idealism of communism dropped away i think that was pretty much how the soviet union was run
0: well to some degree but what's interesting to me is you know american advisors went in in the gorbachev era and were free trade um, Hmm. uh, free market types who uh, said you should get rid of all these nationalized industries and privatize them which was done in a way that led to an oligarchy where Everybody's shares were bought up or acquired by various means by a handful of people. But Putin really created his own oligarchy. Uh, He could ruin even the richest of people and then hand his money over to somebody that was more politically sympathetic to him. So he's Mm -hmm. kind of unusual. Normally, the oligarchy sort of stands behind the throne and the central ruler is threatened by the uh, power of the, the money men behind him. in in Putin's case, uh, he's made himself vastly wealthy, but he has also made a lot of other people vastly wealthy. But on an occasion, he has them thrown into jail or even killed and um, has chosen those who he wants to make wealthy. So it's an interesting form of oligarchy.
1: If you use the construct of oligarchy to think of the Soviet Union, it wasn't like that. But it was true then that there were some people who were extremely well off. Off, connected to the Kremlin, and um, there was a whole mass of people who were not doing so well. <laughs> right. Well, another term that's decidedly has a negative connotation, maybe even a more strongly negative connotation than oligarchy or plutocracy, is kleptocracy.
0: Right. That's a pretty modern term that was developed to label certain leaders as essentially thieves from a Greek root, meaning to steal. And, uh, this is the case where the ruler is not really interested in administering the state so much as just scooping up as much money as possible. It's been argued by some people in recent years that a lot of the foreign aid that's gone to some large African states has been counterproductive because it just went into the pockets and the bank accounts of the leaders and nothing was much was done for the people and it's been argued that it makes more sense to just give money directly to poor people whenever you can that that can be difficult Mm. mugabe of zimbabwe is an example but there are lots of them in africa and other places as well and we've had a few in the united states and governor's offices and so on where they just surround themselves with their cronies and dip into the public treasury and get rich new york politics back in the late 19th and early 20th centuries was famous for that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, of course, it doesn't go away. And uh, it seems to be often exposed, at least in third world countries. I don't know why that's particularly the case. Uh, it may be that the political structures and, and just the overall amount of wealth to go around uh, is is not as uh, solid as, as other places.
0: Yes, and and of course this is related to the term kleptomaniac, a person who is driven to uh, stealing stuff from mm-hmm. uh, local stores or or whatever, and uh, been generalized to this large level of kleptocrat. a a ruler who steals. Mm -hmm.
1: And I was reading a news story last night about a former Major League Baseball player, Raul Mondesi, became a mayor. He moved back to his home, Dominican Republic, and became a mayor of a town and was recently put in jail for running his town as a kleptocracy. He had stolen something in the neighborhood of $6 million. Naturally, in the Dominican economy, that would be a huge amount of money. And the the last paragraph of the story reminded us that as a Major League Baseball player, his total haul was $66 million in, in his Major League career. So you don't have to be a poor and struggling person getting up into power and to end up being a, a kleptocrat.
0: No. That was the charge against the recent uh, leadership in South Korea as well.
1: Okay, so let's talk a little bit about uh, empires and imperialism. This is when, when a nation gets strong, right, and decides that it's it's doing so well it's going to share the wealth, right? Sp- spread some of that great uh, government around in other other areas of the world let's talk about empires
0: yeah i've always been a little baffled by the way that americans with all their love for democracy love the word empire i grew up in northern california in the area around petaluma santa rosa about 50 miles east of san francisco and the local radio stations always referred to their location as the inland empire Mm hmm. And there's a number of those around the United States. And, and why, why is it an empire? They seem to think of empire just meaning region. And the whole notion of imperialism isn't connected to it at all. Of course, people build business empires. We talk about that. That's more like a traditional one. But originally, an empire is a, a territory or a group of territories that's ruled over absolutely by a single person, whether or not that person's called an emperor. But oligarchies and even democracies can have empires. So, although it's originally a single rule, uh, it's quite possible for, say, even uh, France, for instance, had an empire, even while it was proudly proclaiming it was a democracy. One of their possessions was Indochina, which included the territory now known as Vietnam. And after World War II, they tried to reassert control over it after the Japanese were driven out. And uh, to a very complicated process. Finally, um, Ho Chi Minh and his Viet Minh threw the French out. But that's a good example of how an empire can be associated with a democracy. In later use, it's a, a group of subject territories under the rule of a sovereign state is an empire, no matter how the state itself is ruled. As a common error to call uh, Julius Caesar an emperor. He became a dictator within the framework of the Republic of Rome, which was not a democracy, but it did have some popular rule and did indeed rule over and even added to the Roman Empire, but he never took the title of Imperator. Emperor is a title associated traditionally with his successors from Augustus on. It was originally assigned to victorious generals, and certainly Caesar could have qualified for that. He was very famous as a successful general. But it means one who rules from on high. Now, empires are old as human history, dating back to the very early states of ancient Sumer and Egypt. Those states were formed by local monarchs conquering neighboring kingdoms and setting themselves up as rulers over the amalgamated area. So imperialism is not at all a 19th century. Or 20th century invention, that's what leftists tend to concentrate on when they talk about imperialism. But imperialism is just about as old and widespread as slavery. And you might view it slavery as being imperialism on an individual scale. Sure. One of the most influential works on the subject is Vladimir Lenin's 1917 book, Imperialism, the Highest Stage of Capitalism. And that has had a lot of influence on Western thinkers. It was a huge inspiration to Ho Chi Minh. But it also, Western leftists have often been very impressed by it, whereas what uh, Marx had done was criticize mainly uh, the economic structures of capitalism. It was Lenin who took on the idea of the political aspects being extended internationally. That had not been nearly as much the focus in in Marx's case. And of course, people often pointed out, ironically, um, the Soviet Union wound up building its own empire by conquering neighboring states and turning them into subsidiary areas, proclaiming that they were independent and actually getting them votes in the UN and so on. But actually is client states
1: right and i'd like to talk more about empire because this is a huge topic right here that we've stumbled into i think we have to talk about china we have a non-empires china and uh, uh, other terms related to it colonialism and so on but i think we need to save that for next time and we'll just pick up the discussion then
0: all right talk to you then